Good morning, everybody. Welcome again. I, um, I just want to say just out front that I've had a hard time getting coffee this morning. And so I, I, it, 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 I, if I mumble or if I lose track or if I seem to be not making any sense, I can, you can blame it on that. I, I usually make it about 6 o'clock in the morning, but I got up a little later. I was all prepared. Uh, so I got up a little later, didn't make it at home. And uh, got here and uh, waited a little while till eight or eight thirty, and then I, I got some, and and uh, they had made decaf rather than regular, so that didn't work out. And then I went back to the Keurig, and uh, the, there wasn't enough water in the Keurig, and it didn't work either. And it's terrible, isn't it? Just, you feel my pain, don't you? So finally, anyway, I, I found some, and it's 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 beginning to work, but. We had, uh, we had a great, um, we were able to do something really unique with our staff the last, last uh, 24 hours, and so we were together late Friday night, and I was up, up late last night, so just moving a little slow this morning. Hopefully you can, you can bear with me. How many of you went to the movies this weekend? Anybody go to the movies this weekend? Ah, a few of you did. Yeah, good, good. Well, there's a movie that I've got to see, but I'm not looking forward to seeing it. And it's a much-anticipated movie. It hit the theaters this weekend. It's called Spotlight. Spotlight tells the story of journalists from the Boston Globe who uncovered the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church in 2001. And if you remember that story, there were guilty priests who were not held accountable. Their sin was covered up by the uh, Boston Diocese, they were actually aided by lawyers in that cover-up. And 14 years later, it's still a very painful memory. And it can be a painful memory if you are a victim of sexual abuse. Um, Jesus' church suffered an incredible setback that we still sort of live in the wake of that today. And what happened there remains a vital lesson for leaders and members of any organization. And we got to be careful to make sure we don't think this was just a Catholic problem. Just recently here in the last four to five years, a very well-respected evangelical Protestant movement, one that holds many the same values as ours, one that began in the early 70s like ours, it too was rocked by a, just a terrible uh, child abuse scandal with cover-up, and it damaged reputations, it divided leaders and churches, it created a spiritual train wreck. Well, this series that we're in is all about growing up. And part of growing up as members of Christ's church is being willing to love and being willing to hold one another accountable to the very basic commands of Christ. I personally cannot tell you how deeply I appreciate the men and women in my own life who have gently and who have lovingly helped me stay on course. I would not be where I am today, undoubtedly, without people asking me hard questions, friends, mentors being willing to ask those tough questions. These are friends who don't take it for granted that just because I'm a leader or just because I'm teaching the Bible, that everything's 
inside of me is okay. Or that I don't struggle with sin and struggle with temptations. Helping one another in this way, or the failure to do so, bears a lot of resemblance to the same dilemma that this church was grappling with. They had sexual sin in their midst too. Just like the examples that I shared. And would they take it seriously? Or would they ignore it? This was their critical question. And if we can learn some things today, it'll, from their story, it'll help us stay on course as well and avoid train wreck in our own, in our own church. If you're our guest this morning, let me tell you just what we've been doing. We've been traveling through the New Testament book of First Corinthians. And today we are at chapter 5. And if you've not guessed it already, it's not a very pleasant subject. <laughs> it's not a subject we might associate with, you know, the nice things around Christmas. But what we try to do here is just try to allow the Bible to um, dictate to lead our agenda. And this is where we find ourselves this morning in chapter 5. Here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'm going to read the chapter as a whole, and then I'm going to break it down into four different sections. And with each section, I'll ask two or three questions that will help us to unpack this passage. What you'll see as we read it as a whole, there are a lot of questions that emerge And there's some background information that we need in order to make any sense of this passage. So it might have some relevance to us today. And that's what we'll try to to do. So let me read the passage. If you want to follow in the Pew Bible, it is page 954. It's, It's a small chapter, so we'll be able to cover the entire chapter this morning. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present... I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the entire lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing you to not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother 
If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those who is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's, God's word. Let's take a moment and pray that his Holy Spirit could guide us. Father, by your Holy Spirit, teach us, guide us, inspire us, illumine us today in helping us become the kind of people, Father, that you desire us to be. We pray that our hearts might be open to whatever you want to say to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, all kinds of questions bubble up, don't they, in reading this passage. So please pray for me that I can help make this clear. Look at the first couple of verses. We'll, we'll break this down to be the first section. And let me reread just those first two verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let whom has done this be removed from among you. So, what's going on here? <laughs> what is happening? Well, it's quite clear. A man is having sexual relations with his father's wife. Now, the very phrasing indicates that it's not his biological mother, but it's a stepmother. And the phrase may actually suggest marriage to her. Now, our English translation does not translate well the amazement, the anger, and the moral indignation that Paul has, they were turning a blind eye to a practice that was reprehensible even outside the church. They found it, the, the pagans found it to be awful. Incest, sexual relations with a family member was regarded as a serious offense in this culture, even punishable by law. Makes you sort of wonder if there was even a cover-up in this place. So Paul's first reproach is interesting. I'm sorry. Yeah, Paul's first reproach, his approach to them is interesting. We might think that he would go after them being morally lax, but he actually goes after them for being arrogant. It's interesting. Why? Well, we have to remember from what we've learned in previous chapters, Paul is not only addressing their inadequate response. But remember, he's dealing with deep-rooted spiritual pride. The Corinthian Christians, remember, viewed themselves as models of wisdom and thus saw themselves as sort of super-spiritual saints. In chapter 4, Paul says, ironically, you've already become kings. They saw themselves above the law. They perceived themselves as bearers of special knowledge and therefore free from normal moral constraints. Those in this church that overemphasize grace may have taken pride in their progressive attitude 
We could accept these people. We could accept some that while others, while others could not. Now, a lot of scholars present a very interesting case when they look at the entire book of 1 Corinthians. They present a compelling case that this man could very well have been a wealthy patron and had the sort of status that the Corinthians just idolized. Now, patrons were a very common thing back in the ancient world. Patrons were named guardians or they were supporters of recently freed slaves. They may have financially supported artists or writers. And it is feasible that this man was a patron, was a financial supporter of members of this church. He may have even opened his home up for meetings. All of this could explain their reticence in confronting this person. And it surely reveals again how deeply invested they were in a worldly vision of success. But jump to verse 6 for a moment. Paul again here says, Your boasting is not good. Paul is saying, How can you boast when you are permitting an evil that is condemned even by your non-Christian neighbors? Paul says you should have mourned. That should have been your reaction. Why? Well, first, mourning for this man and his broken family but also mourning for the entire community because their actions were making, and their inaction was making the entire community vulnerable to the judgment and the discipline of God Himself. And Paul's asking them to stand with Christ. And Paul's asking them to stand with Him. This is what he gets into here. Look at verse 3. And let me reread this passage. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now to grasp the meaning here, there's lots of questions. It's helpful if we back up a little And let's first ask this question. Why is Paul so bold to insert himself into the affairs of this local church? It's a good question. It's an important question. Now, time does not permit us to go into 2 Corinthians. Because there in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains with some detail the nature of of his authority. His authority comes from Christ. His authority is rooted in love. His authority is aimed at their benefit, at their joy. His authority has also bubbled up from below. It's the respect that the Corinthians give to Paul. Paul was the founding missionary, the founding apostle of this church. Paul shared the gospel of Christ with them. Paul loved them. Paul was, uh, Paul was the catalyst for forming the spiritual community. And so Paul reminds us that when you meet, you meet in the name of Christ. And what does this mean? It means that though Paul exercises authority, really, ultimately, authority 
belongs to Christ. It is His presence. It is His power. It is His promise that is with you when you gather. By the way, it still is today. But Paul is not seeking to act alone. He's acting under the authority of Christ. And he is seeking their partnership in this decision by calling them to assemble together. He's asking them to share in this important decision as a community. Paul does not want to exercise this level of authority forever. He actually has an exit plan. And again, if we could see through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we would see Paul is seeking to develop and mature them because in the future, he wants them to make these right judgments and these right decisions without his, without his aid. It's interesting as well that by calling on the entire community and not just the leaders, it's evident that what was taking place was not being done secretly. This sin was known to the entire church. It had impacted the entire church. Therefore, it needed to be addressed openly with courage and with transparency. Now, here's another crazy question. What does it mean to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? That raises lots of questions. Well, I think to put it very simply... To be delivered to Satan meant that Satan is God's agent for this man's punishment. I like how one commentator put it. Putting him outside the sphere of God's protection makes him vulnerable to satanic forces from which Christians have been rescued. Close quote. Now, is that really true? Is that really the case? Uh, that, that may be, for some of you, that may be a sort of a brand new thought or it, it, something you've not heard before. But there are ample numbers of scriptures to support this. That being in Christ's church, that submitting your life to His Word and to your brothers and sisters and to your leaders does afford you a measure of protection. Now, that protection is primarily a spiritual protection. A protection from damaging lies, half-truths, and mistruths. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but maybe, maybe it'll be of a little help. Imagine, imagine the church like a castle being led by God the King. And within that castle, there is safety within the protection of the King. And even when you travel outside the castle. There's danger, but because you bear the king's name, your life is valued. An attack on you is like attacking the king himself. But once you say that you do not belong to the king, you say, I'm on my own, I'm free to do what I want and go where I want. You bear no other name but your own. You are responsible and accountable to no one, which is a choice you can make then what the Scriptures would say is that you've removed yourself, in a sense, from the protection that God offers. Again, this is primarily a spiritual protection, but I believe it could bleed over into a physical protection as well. Now, 
What does this last phrase mean? What is the destruction of the flesh? What is that about? Now, this has traditionally been understood as referring to a possible death punishment on this man. The body dies, but the soul is saved. I'm not sure that I agree with that interpretation. It is at least not the only possible interpretation. Flesh in the New Testament, this Greek word, is when translated flesh, has multiple meanings. It could mean the soft, fleshly, physical body. But Paul, more so, uses it to describe a specific mental state, a mental orientation. The flesh represents a mental orientation towards a, a certain orientation of life. One commentator defined the flesh this way. It is the sin bent self characterized by self-sufficiency and it wages war against God. So when in the flesh, the compass is always pointing towards me. It's always and pointing away from God. As a matter of fact, if you look back to just a chapter earlier, verse chapter 3, verse 3, There you will see when Paul uses the word flesh, it is clearly in this vein that he intends it to mean. So if this is the way Paul is using it, what he is pointing to is the eradication of that sinful self, that earthly nature, to be crucified with Christ, to put Christ on the throne, and to remove self so that his spirit may be saved. So that he can come to Christ. In other words, there indeed could be a hint here that this man's actions betray that he has any kind of vital relationship or connection to Jesus. Either way, if you look at this again, look at the phrase that a spirit might be saved. Paul has a redemptive, not a vengeful intent here. Paul has a redemptive, not a vengeful intent. Paul is exercising a judgment, but is not being judgmental. To exercise a judgment is to see and speak truth. To be judgmental is to condemn from vindictiveness or hatred. Paul is exercising today what we call tough love. His hope for this man was that being cut off from the benefits of of the church community, that he would be awakened. He would shake off the deception that he's in. It would cause him to see things as they truly are, to cut off this destructive relationship and to empower him to clearly see that membership in the body of Christ means something. You know, there are, in, in, our, in our marital counseling, there are those exceptionally rare times when we might counsel a spouse that is being taken advantage of, that is being treated with contempt, to temporarily separate in order to cut off the benefits of the relationship. Why? It is the same hope. It is the hope that the offending spouse will wake up They will see things as they truly are and they will re-enter back into the relationship with a transformed attitude. Let me just stay on this point for a little bit longer. 
Every doctor, for example, exercises a judgment when telling a patient they have cancer. It is not judgmental to tell a patient they have a terrible disease lurking within them. It would be judgmental, however, if the doctor, for some reason, had a hateful or prejudiced or condemning attitude towards that patient. Every jury is asked to render a judgment when presented a case that requires an up or down decision. It is not hateful to speak the truth and discern the truth and to render a guilty verdict, but it would be judgmental if a juror did that with an attitude of contempt or an attitude of self-righteous pride. It is critical that we not confuse rendering a judgment with being judgmental. Jesus told us not to be judgmental, but He never intended His people to be silent about what is clearly right and what is clearly wrong, particularly when it happens inside the church. Now, let's look at this next passage. I hope all that makes sense. That's a big piece there. And uh, you may need to take a little time to reflect on what we've talked about and shared with respect to those issues of judgment and being judgmental. But we've got to move on here. Verse 6, because you see, Paul's concern here is not only for restoring the erring man. That's not his only concern. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What is Paul talking about? Again, it's clear if we could just break it down. He's presenting two pictures, two metaphors here. Here's the first. The first is leaven. And leaven in the Old Testament represented conceit, falsehood, evil. And then the second metaphor is the bread eaten at a Jewish Passover. Now, perhaps already you can see where Paul's going in bringing up this passage. But let's take a look at that first picture. In the first picture, some of you who bake know this, it takes just a small amount of leaven to penetrate and to transform the dough. Just a little leaven can infect the entire batch, right? What is Paul saying? One man's sin can infect the whole church. One man's sin, if left unchecked, is a toxin that could potentially ruin the entire community. See, the private sin is not so private. The private sin has a damage, so-called private sin, has a damaging impact on others by permitting it, by ignoring it, by rationalizing it. What did it say to others in that church about the meaning of purity, about the meaning of family, about the meaning of appropriate relationships? What did it say about the weight that we give to Christ's commands or the undue influence that we give to powerful 
or to influential members. And what did it say to the culture? How did it undermine their mission? How did it impact their primary message that Jesus was Lord over all? That He wasn't just any other ordinary Roman small g God that existed for our own convenience. What did it say if they did not act at all? Here's Paul's second analogy. Is that the old and the new cannot be mixed. Now his analogy assumes that you know something about Jewish rituals. Only unleavened bread was to be eaten during Passover. Bread free of evil or conceit. As a matter of fact, there was a ceremonial search to remove every crumb of leavened bread on the morning when the Passover lambs were sacrificed. But now Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, has come and died. He has done away with the old leaven. What is Paul saying? He's saying, you Corinthians, you're in Christ. Through Christ, you are now like the unleavened bread. He's made you pure. He's cleansed you. Be what you are. Live as Jesus' followers. What you do comes from who you are. And closing your eyes to this revolting sin betrays who you are as the people of God. So do you see where Paul is going here? His first concern is with the individual and restoring him. But that's not the only purpose here. He's also concerned with protecting this church. If they are not a courageous and transparent, their compromise can unleash a virus in the church from which it might not survive. Paul has an equal concern for both. Do you remember Ray Rice? Those of you that are NFL fans surely will remember, remember Ray Rice. But if you don't know the story, let me just give you a little background. Ray Rice, interesting enough, put domestic abuse domestic abuse on the map. Ray Rice was a big, strong running back for the Baltimore Ravens. And a few years ago, an elevator video caught him striking his wife, then dragging her unconscious body out of the elevator. You know, before that, in a lot of different worlds, domestic violence, nobody was held accountable. NFL players were given slaps on the wrist, usually a two-game suspension. And no one ever thought to challenge Rappers for their lyrics that promoted horrible violence towards women. And that video changed everything. Ray Rice paid a terrible price that others had not been asked to pay. And the NFL finally took a strong stand, not just for Ray Rice's rehabilitation, but they took a strong stand to save the integrity of the game. If the NFL became known for turning a blind eye to domestic abuse, how could fans, how could advertisers associate themselves with it? Now, I don't know if the NFL changed course for moral reasons. I'm highly suspicious that's not the case. When they felt the pressure from the advertisers, that's when they changed. They darn well knew they could not stay in business if they didn't wake up. Paul wasn't making any money in this Paul's not operating from any profit. Paul only has the motive of Christ and what's right and human relationships being being put together in appropriate ways, men and women being cared for. Paul did care for the erring man. 
He wanted them to be restored. But if this analogy from the NFL can be brought over to one degree, Paul was not just concerned for the erring man. Paul was concerned as well that this church retain its vital witness and to remain, retain its integrity. Let's look now at the final section. Paul's going to pivot now. Paul's going to leave this current situation and talk not just about it. Actually, he'll keep talking about it. But he also has other concerns. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I don't think this was the first confrontation, by the way, because of that. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world are the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd have to, you, would have, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. All right. What action is Paul asking them to take? Here's where it gets tough. Verse 2, he said, Let whom had done this be removed. In verse 7, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven. The final verse, he says, Purge the evil person from among you. Paul is moving here to very practical instruction. And this indeed is where it gets hard. He is appealing to the church to cut this individual off from being a member of Christ's church, to not associate with him, to not even eat with him. Eating together in the ancient world meant more than friendliness. It created a social bond. When believers ate together, it confirmed their unity around Christ. For first century Christians, this also meant exclusion from taking the Lord's Supper, communion since that was shared around a common meal. So Paul is appealing to them to stand with him and with the Lord Jesus Christ against this terrible sexual sin that this man is committing. You know, we, I just want to share just one little parenthesis here. You know, for a lot of us, that it might, it, you know, might just wash over us as extreme. It might wash over us as being, how, how could that... How could that possibly be what God would want? And I I would just caution you in thinking about that to remember that there are people in this very room who have suffered deeply. And I interact with people on a regular basis who have suffered from sexual abuse in one way or another. And I'm telling you, they would have loved to have someone stand up like that for them. They would have loved to have somebody stand up and say, this is wrong. Don't even associate with this person. The kind of damage that they're living with. The kind of damage that they're experiencing. The kind of damage that their children experience because of the sexual abuse they went through. They would have loved to have someone stand up to a perpetrator with this kind of, this kind of passion and this kind of, this kind of zeal for what's right and for justice. Now, next question. Why is there a difference between the way Christians relate to those outside the faith and the way that they relate to believers. Do you see Paul's heart here? It's amazing. 
It's amazing. Paul's not calling for a Christian ghetto. He's not calling for wholesale retreat or defensiveness. If the church is to have a vibrant witness, it must rub shoulders with very lost people. That's what Jesus did. He is not suggesting a pharisaical hands-off policy from anyone who sins. He is not suggesting a pharisaical policy from those that are confessing sin and struggling with sin and wrestling with sin. If that were the case, Paul says, maybe sarcastically, we'd have to leave the world. Paul is rendering here, in this sense, no judgment on those outside the church. He leaves all judgment to God with respect to those outside the church. He does not expect those without Christ to embrace the thinking and behavior of those who have Christ. But when a person connects and associates with the church, when they call themselves a Jesus follower, but by their repeated actions and after many warnings, continue to drag Christ's name through the mud while still wanting the benefits of community and fellowship, then the church community must do something. Or it risks imploding from within. As said by some others better than I can say it, those who are blatantly immoral cannot be allowed to represent what it means to be a Christian. At some point, patience ceases to be a virtue. The church is called to keep its moral house in order and God will hold us accountable to it. Now, what else can damage the church? I think most of us would agree that incest damages the church's reputation Paul has other concerns as well. He pivots from the specific instructions regarding this man to a more general instruction, and he lists other behaviors that can damage the purity and the witness of the church. For example, greed and swindling. They likely overlap here and mean the same thing. They are people possessed by an urge to gain an unfair or unlawful edge over others. They are people who are cunning and predatory. You know, the perception in the ancient world is that the supply of goods was limited. And everyone could have enough if others did not have too much. Greed seriously threatened that balance and made the poverty of the poor far worse. The greedy prospered at the expense and defrauding of others. That can damage the church. How about the reviler? The reviler causes division, something Paul's already addressed. The drunkard here is likely connected to idolatrous feasts. At ancient banquets, eating and drinking to an excess led to sexual decadence afterwards. Idolatry in the Jewish mind was connected to sexual sin since sexual acts were interwoven and connected to the Gentile pagan religious ceremonies. You see, we might be tempted to think that only something reaching to the repulsive heights of incest 
could contaminate the life of the church. When in reality, greed, other sexual sins, creating divisions, those two create tremendous damage in the church. These were the vices that were destroying the lives of the pagan culture around them, and the members of this young church were not yet set free from them. The church stood at a critical moment. Would it be swallowed up? Would it be pressed by the world around it? Or would it have the courage to follow Jesus and to offer a radically different vision of life? Can you feel Paul's heart here? I hope that you can. And I really think it should be the heart of every Christian leader and Christian member. He's trying to walk a tightrope. Paul, surely, we know Paul. We know his heart. We know that he believes, as Rich said earlier, the gospel is good news. And the church is a welcoming community that embraces confessed sinners and helps those who have failed or are failing get back on their feet. I mean, Paul's body bore the scars of living and communicating that message. But on the other hand, what if Christ's church becomes such a morally permissive community where anything goes? What will happen to its overall witness within, its overall witness and the quality of life within it? Paul knew we remember that Christ has called us to be salt, penetrating, preserving culture, drawing out like salt does to me, drawing out the true joy of life and making others thirsty for it. But salt can become old. Salt can lose its saltiness. And if we carry out disciplinary measures in the wrong way, with the wrong heart, in an overbearing and over-exclusive way, that's not what Paul's after either. Paul's trying to carve out a different way, a third way, a narrow road that brings together love and truth and holds them in a delicate tension. A church that is grace-filled, but a church that is truth-filled. If I were to put into a sentence what I think is the big idea of this passage and this chapter, I would say, I would say it's this. God values the purity and witness of His church and is passionate to protect it. He's passionate to protect it. And so when we join Christ's church, when we accept the responsibility to become members of Christ's church, it means that we agree and we commit to lovingly support one another, to bear one another's burdens, to pray for one another, to serve one another. And yes, in those moments when it is needed, we are called as members of Christ's church to hold one another accountable to the basic commands of Christ. And when we do that, when we enter into that hard work, we tell God that, yeah, we too, we value this thing called the body of Christ. We value Christ's church. We value its purity. And we value, we value its witness. This is a tremendous passage to lead us this morning to taking the bread and taking the juice together. We've already reviewed how Christ Himself 
is the Passover lamb. This morning there may be here the memory in your own life of sexual sin that you've been guilty of. When we take the bread and we take the juice, we remember that Christ died for us and forgave us. There may be some of you whom this message works the other way. You were on the wrong side. You were the victim of a perpetrator of sexual abuse. When we take the bread and when we take the juice this morning, it's a little bit of a more difficult road. It's to say that I'm in this process of forgiving that person. Because Christ has forgiven me, I'm in the process of learning to forgive that individual that so hurt me in that way. And in taking the bread and the juice, we also remember the Lord Jesus, who is our protector. Who is our protector? And this world doesn't reflect often that reflection That protection God gave human beings free will. And it's been so misused and so so terribly abused. But that was never God's will. That was never God's desire. That was never God's intent. God's intent and God's God's entire framework was for the family to work and for and for and for brothers and sisters to work in such a way that we would protect one another. That a mom and dad would be a protector, not an abuser. An aunt and uncle would be a protector, not an abuser. It was never God's will for what's taken place to have taken place. But when we come to the cross this morning, we come back to a place where we can learn to forgive. We can receive God's forgiveness for our own own sins. And we remember that Christ was not, not just one of a long line of Passover lambs. He was the ultimate Passover lamb. When those Passover lambs were sacrificed in a Jewish festival, they were looking to and pointing to and a type of the ultimate Passover lamb who came in the person and was born on the Christmas day of Jesus Christ. That's who we celebrate. Let me take a moment and um, I'm going to pray. And what we'll do is we're going to have bread and juice passed. And I'd like you to hang on to it and then we'll take it all together as a community. Let's pray and thank the Lord for these elements. Father, thank you for the bread and the juice and the forgiveness that they represent in Christ's name. Give us the power, God, to accept forgiveness or give forgiveness this morning and to remember and be instilled with the hope that you are returning again. You said to take the bread and take the juice until you return. We remember and look forward, Christ, to your returning and making everything right and bringing justice to this world. In your name we pray. Amen.